Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Ward Carroll, the Naval Institute's Director of Outreach and Marketing. Joining me as my co-host for this special history episode of the podcast is the Naval History Editor-in-Chief, Eric Mills. Hello, Eric. Hello, Ward. Good to see you again. Good to see you again. It's been a while since I last saw you, like, what, 20 minutes? Um, Long time no see. Yes. So, um, as we said in the last program, we're dealing with the... uh, the remnants of the tropical storm that rolled through here. We have some connectivity things that we're um, wrestling with, but uh, we'll endeavor to be uh, good sailors and, and press on here. So uh, have a great guest today. Uh, the article is called The Seventh Frigate, and our guest is Bill Prom. Hello, Bill. Hi. And uh, we know from our pre-taping uh, Exchange that you're down in Houston. What's happening down in the Houston area? Uh, August tea. Yeah, uh, we're, that's we're uh, pretty standard here. Yeah, um, although I will say that the uh, tropical storm, for the time being, cleared out the humidity a little bit. Um, so uh, we, we, it's been pretty uh, overbearing for the last two or three weeks. Um, so anyway, um, thank you for calling us or for joining our uh, our video chat here. Um, so tell us a little bit about this article, the seventh frigate. So, uh, the story of the frigate Crescent was something that I've kind of been fascinated by for a while. I'm not exactly sure when I first came upon it, probably sometime at the Naval Academy, uh, researching for something, but basic premise uh, of the United States needing to pay for and build a weapon of war for a country that we're not at peace with seemed kind of odd. Um, but as I dug into it more, it really, it, it wasn't that simple. And uh, I, I like to put it in perspective of that a lot of popular uh, or some of the more modern history of our affairs with the Barbary states, uh, especially post 9-11, are a little little off. Sometimes you'll get that it's like the first global war on terror type of thing in the early 1800s. And it really wasn't that simple at all. And in a lot of ways, this was something that the U.S. just had to do at the time to simply play the game. Because we were barely a nation at that time. It's interesting diplomacy back then, Bill, compared to now. I mean, you think about um, U.S. Navy ships um, operating in other navies. They're generally um, partners or allies. But the idea that we would build a frigate from scratch for the the day of Algiers just so he wouldn't plunder American shipping, um, it sounds like a shakedown. But as you say, that's the way diplomacy was done in that neck of the woods in that time in history. Other nations did it as well. Yeah, we were just one of many, essentially, at that point. It was something new to the United States because only a generation prior, we had the Royal Navy defending all of our commerce. So it wasn't a concern that before the revolution, we had about, I think it was 200 merchant ships annually uh, going to ports in the Mediterranean or European Mediterranean and unmolested because we had Royal Navy protection. And that dropped then to about 100. So, like, it still is a lot annually, but half shortly after uh, we gained our independence. And 
that was part of the price of independence, essentially. If we wanted to be a commercial nation out there, we had to play the game. Yeah, so the game was sort of like uh, an episode of The Sopranos, right? I mean, you, you had to pay uh, tribute or however you want to call it to get by the Straits of Gibraltar. Um, and as you mentioned, the calculus changed after the Revolutionary War because we didn't have any top cover from the Royal Navy anymore. But in this fledgling nation, this upstart nation, wasn't really cool with having to do that. Um, so there was a lot in play. And as you mentioned from the outset, um, this, you know, we weren't quite sure what the Navy was for and we didn't really enjoy, um, the unconditional support of, of lawmakers with respect to what some of them viewed as provocative to have an over the horizon Navy that would go to the Med and, and sort of even engage, never mind whether it was just showing the flag or whatever, right? There was so... You know, when you talk about this era of the U.S. Navy, they really were operating without a net. Yes, exactly. The The U.S. Navy was formed in reaction to this Congress or to this crisis. That's when 1794 Naval Armament Act was created. Those original six frigates started construction until we got that first peace treaty with Algiers, which halted construction on, on half of them, at least. Um, and a pause to build uh, this frigate, the Crescent, then. And, yeah, the, that was only, they were only able to continue on those three uh, just because the president kind of urged, uh, like, we, we still should at least continue with this so we have something uh, on hand because kind of a lot in Congress at the time did not like the idea of a standing military. Within a few years, they'd be glad they did, though, when the quasi-war with France broke out and those first six frigates get their uh, baptism under fire. So it's good they kept building them, right? Yes, exactly. And that uh, those tensions with France also seem to be kind of in the background throughout a lot of uh, the story of the Crescent. And that part of our issue is that we had no foreign credit that we're trying to be a commercial nation, but we can't build credit overseas because we owed so much money, so much debt from the revolution, especially to France. Um, and then part of the start of the crazy war is that we stopped paying that because with revolutionary France, it's now a new country. And uh, we didn't feel that we owed them that money since they weren't the ones that we got that from. Another irony, right? Our first friend is France. We win our independence thanks to France, and yet our first hostile enemy in a war, albeit a quasi-war, is, of all countries, France. Yes, and definitely a, a forgotten irony by for most. So let's get back to the Crescent. The ship's built, yes. who delivered it, and then what happened? All right, so the, the Crescent was built in Portsmouth by uh, Hackett. He was a famous uh, ship right of the time he was building the USS Congress one of the original six frigates and it's uh, delivered once complete uh, there are a lot of delays with that uh, just getting all of the money because part of it it's not just the ship it's being loaded with cannons with shot powder other naval stores and uh, 26 barrels of money of specie um, or silver coins uh, so it took some time to collect that. And uh, the first captain of the Crescent is a former captive of uh, Algiers. Uh, he's 
bringing it there on board is also Richard O'Brien, who is uh, captain of the first or second of the American ships captured by Algiers and imprisoned. He was about to be, or was just appointed to be the consul general to Algiers, and essentially the consuls were uh, the head diplomats to the very Barbary powers, and he being the the greater the greatest amongst them, greatest of, amongst equals, you could say. Um, so the, the Crescent's delivered, and the U.S. was actually already reaping the benefits of that. Like When it pulled into port, there were three American merchants uh, seeking shelter from Algiers, from Spanish and French privateers uh, that chased them in. Uh, and in that time between... Uh, re-establishing peace with Algiers and the delivery of the Crescent, the day of Algiers is negotiating on our behalf with the other Barbary states. The, like, he's getting a, we, we got much better deals essentially with the others. They are also, they were weaker powers. Algiers was the most powerful by far. Um, but he even interceded in uh, Tunis when they were upset with how little we were paying them compared to uh, some of the other states, he brought forces in there and enforced that treaty for us. It's interesting, and I'm, I'm reminded that uh, the, the president gave an interview recently to Axios where he was talking about our uh, adventures in the Middle East as if they had started uh, with uh, the invasion of Afghanistan um, in 2001. And so now I'm reminded that they started a really long time before that, because as, as a function of um, sort of um, pragmatic reality, we had to have allies in the Muslim slash Arab world uh, to get by in the, in the early days of, uh, of the Republic. Yes, yeah, we were, we were a commercial nation. We had a lot of grain we wanted to sell. And Morocco was a, an especially important one just being on outside of Gibraltar there. They're like, if we were to have poor relations with them, it'd be really hard to get anything across the Atlantic. The name of the article, we call it the seventh frigate because everybody who knows early Navy history um, knows the first six frigates, the birth of the Navy and all that. But technically speaking, it's finished before all six of those are finished, correct? Where is yes. it in, in terms of being completed, where is it in the order? Like fourth, um, third, or fourth. It's somewhere in the middle, really. Yeah, third or fourth. It's not the yeah, seventh. Exactly. The it's no, no, it's definitely not. It's. Uh, I always. I like the the tongue in cheek nature of the title, kind of being the seventh of six. Uh, but yeah, it's right. you know, since we reestablished peace with Algiers, that that first naval armament act called for the cessation of construction, and again, President Washington can convince Congress to at least continue with three. And the Crescent started then in that area, like that time frame. So the the United States was the first to launch, and it launched, I want to say, a month or so prior. I could find my timeline here. Um, it, it launched about a month before the Crescent, I believe. Mm-hmm. And I think it was the Constitution and the installation were the other two that were continued. I'm not positive. And, and then, uh, and I think the Crescent may have even launched before one of them, uh, as far as like when it's actual, actually complete, like loaded, ready to go. Yeah, it's at least the fourth. 
And the designer of the Crescent is a famous designer, too, of the early Navy, designed a Congress, too, I believe, right? Tell us about him. Yeah, so uh, Fox is the, or Josiah Fox, he's the designer of the Crescent, and there's one of the designers of the original six frigates. There's definitely, uh, people hold very strong opinions about this fact, whether it was uh, Joshua Humphreys or Josiah Fox. I think most would agree that Joshua Humphreys was the primary designer for the original six um, and that Josiah Fox assisted in some manner. He was a trained shipwright that was hired as a clerk. Um, it's certainly, it's interesting in that their, uh, their children and grandchildren put a lot of effort into claiming who was like the primary uh, designer of those six. Um, but yeah, Josiah Fox was hired to design the Crescent. So like, he, he at least had a hand in those other first six for the U.S. Navy. And you mentioned these legendary names of early American Navy ship construction, Hackett, Fox, Humphreys. There was no love lost between these individuals at some, at some points, was there? Definitely between uh, Fox and Humphreys. Uh, like I believe uh, Ian Toll's book, uh, Six Frigates, which really is popularized this probably for a lot, uh, the idea of those first six, a portion of that. Mm-hmm. Well, in the final paragraph in the, uh, in the article, you, you say the story of the Crescent should not be an embarrassment to the United States. What, why would it possibly be an embarrassment? What do you mean by that? Uh, well, I go back with uh, where I started and kind of my fascination with with the Crescent, this idea that we're, we're basically at war with this nation, or we had a peace treaty, but they're saying that we're violating it, so they're capturing and imprisoning our merchant sailors. And so why would we go about building a, a weapon of war for them? It, like, is that, how belittling is that? Um, and as I, I researched it further, it's really seen as like, no, that is not. That's, we... It was frankly cheaper for us to build that than to keep trying to find other funds because our our money wasn't worth anything anywhere else in the world. Um, but we could build a ship that was worth something. Well, I could just imagine so, the the media of the day, uh, and I don't know if you have anything in your research that shows this to be true, but uh, when this thing was being funded um, and they're trying to procure the money to build it and however they did appropriations and acquisition in those days, it had to be controversial, you know, on on the Hill. You can imagine lawmakers arguing about now, hold it. Let me get this right. We're building a ship for a nation that is capturing, you know, our, our taking our ships hostage. You know, why don't we double down on war and how come we're, you know, this just seems counterintuitive. I can just imagine how this would be played out on the, you know, on Twitter these days. I don't have exact quotes from anything, but I know part of it, like they, they seem to understand at the time. Uh, Cause frankly, those first uh, sailors that were captured, they had been rotting in prison and enslaved for several years before the government really even acted. Cause we were under the articles of confederation at the time. And we sold off our last con- continental Navy ship. I think months after the first Americans were taken Um and we didn't do a whole lot more once the government under the Constitution started. It took several years to find that appropriation 
for the tribute to the other nations. And But I'm sure there was definitely some wrangling because in that first year when uh, our peace was reestablished with Algiers, all of the payments, like the, the ransom for the sailors, uh, the first-time tribute, and then the annual tribute accounted for, I believe, one, I think it was one-sixth of the GDP that year. So a particularly large line item in the budget, you could say. And that was before the agreement of the Crescent was on the table, even. So I, I think it, it was more or less argued, like, we're... We're not going to be able to avoid it. Well, it, it's it's career as a ship for um, as an Algerine frigate. It uh, in the subsequent years, if I'm not mistaken, it never fired a shot in anger at American ships, did it? It turned out it never really was used, turned and used against us in any way. No, no, it wasn't. It it uh, it kind of rotted in the harbor. It didn't do a whole lot there. Uh, part of it, uh, based on some of the, the observations of ones like Richard O'Brien, again, he was a consul general, he was living in Algiers then as our top diplomat at the time, uh, he and others would see just how badly rotted uh, the other ships and their fleet were, and that just the, the poor care that was taken. Uh, and it's also evidence that like this, after the delivery of the Crescent, Algiers started buying ships from us. Like they, we had paid off our tribute also by delivering, I think it was four other brigs. Uh, so like our part of that, uh, the payment that was due that we owed them was kind of washed away as we just kept building more. And at one point the day was even asking for an American shipwright and master sailmaker to just come and be like for him to hire them himself so that they, even though they're, they were a maritime country, it didn't seem like they had the infrastructure to actually care for a fleet. Uh, you'd like to think that it was sort of a status symbol for Algiers to have American built ships. It sounds like it's a mark of prestige almost. Bring us more American ships. It's like a badge of status or something. I'd like to think that yeah. anyway. And I think, honestly, that's what the government was, like the U.S. government was trying to go for with this, too, and that they spent a lot of time and effort designing the Crescent, trying to make it superior to the other European ships that were delivered. Uh, like there was, uh, I think I included it in the article that there was a point where President Washington was furious with Secretary McHenry, uh, the war secretary at the time, over the lack of progress with the ship. Uh, the letter is pretty interesting. It, I think he wrote it from Mount Vernon while on a break. And it's essentially like, do I have to do everything kind of tone? Like I thought I left instruction for what needed to be done. Um, and then he's also like, equally apologetic when he finds out that, no, like it's progressed quite well. We're very far along and was a little embarrassed by it. It seemed. So, you, we've thrown some names out, uh, especially or particularly on the naval architect ship builder side. Um, let's talk about the seafarer side and, and let's give the listeners a, a sense of who these guys were uh, in, in general. So you mentioned O'Brien. We've talked about um, Decatur. Bainbridge is mentioned here. Captain James Sever. What did they all have in common? You know, who were these guys? Right, so 
to start, I'd even add uh, John Paul Jones into that list and having some close relation or slight relation to this and that he was originally our first uh, diplomat that we uh, that Secretary Jefferson appointed to Algiers, but he, he died in Paris on his way. Um, uh, but then you have, like you mentioned, uh, Decatur and uh, Bainbridge, Sever, they're all early officers in the U.S., like Sever, James Sever was first captain of the Congress, didn't have too illustrious of a career, especially with the Congress, which didn't have illustrious career either. Um, but uh, Bainbridge is, is one that's interesting in this, that I kind of liked the his connection somewhat to, to Algiers and that he's uh, infamous for a number of reasons. One of them, when he was a, a young captain of the frigate George Washington, he was coerced into delivering the day of Algiers, his tribute to the Sultan at the Ottoman Empire, because ultimately Algiers was a, a possession, loosely held, but they, they owed money to the Sultan, and it was kind of tricked, of course, uh, there's a number of ways to look at it, but he dropped the American colors on the George Washington, put up the Algiers colors to carry that to, uh, to uh, Constantinople. Uh, to deliver to, or to Istanbul, rather, to deliver to the sultan. He wants to get his revenge, in a sense, when after the War of 1812, we go back to war with the Barbary powers, because they were taking advantage of Europe at war during the uh, Napoleonic Wars, that they kind of had free reign. Nobody was stopping them. So as soon as we were done with uh, fighting the British in 1815, we started sending squadrons out there. So and the Congress is finally on its way out to uh, the Mediterranean to fight. That's what it was built to do originally. Charles Morris is the captain of it. But when uh, Bainbridge's squadron with the Congress in it arrives at Gibraltar, they find out, oh, we lost out. Uh, the war is already over because Stephen Decatur was there, I believe, with Guerriere. Um, and basically uh, forced a new treaty uh, on each of the states. And it was, yeah, very short-lived uh, Second Barbary War. It's interesting how so much of our early naval history as a country is interwoven with the Barbary states, um, you know, and it's a repeat beat. It, it, it happens, you know, it's this earliest thing you write about then it happens under Jefferson. Then there's another one. I mean, it, it's like we keep getting pulled back into that milieu. I guess it's because the Mediterranean was like the commercial transit choke point of international commerce, like, say, uh, the Malacca Straits would be today or something like that. It was just like it was essential that you be there. And so this kind of thing kept coming up. But it's interesting how we're tied in with that early on. And to this day, I think that's why post-9-11 historians like to harken back to it. It's a real easy hook to harken back to, but it is food for thought. Well, but it's, it's right there from our origin. Yeah, it's an easy hook, sure, but it's also true. You know, it really yes. did set the tone 
for what this over-the-horizon expeditionary force would do. It, you know, when Decatur came back, he knew more about the Middle East than any lawmaker. He knew more about how do you get along with the leadership in those places? How, what's their breaking point? What matters in terms of negotiations, goods, services, so forth and so on? So this is where military officers, particularly naval officers in the early days of the Republic, were as much State Department guys as they were military guys because uh, they knew things. That's certainly what we saw in Afghanistan. And this is a nice segue to your bio, Bill, which is, we, we should have said at the outset, but you're, you're an Academy grad, class of 09, with a BS in history. You went Marine Corps and you went to Afghanistan in, in 2012. So what was your MOS? I was artillery. 0802. Okay, and and so where were you in Afghanistan? What did, what what did you do when you were there? So I I was with a uh, high mark platoon, the rocket artillery. Uh, we were in Helmand Province, a uh, little tiny base for uh, Fab Eddie. It was basically us. There was uh, and I think a couple contractors. Um, so, but it was a great base to to shoot from. We shot a lot of missions. Uh, I think they. The following platoon may have shot more than us, but I know we were setting some records at the time. Uh, but that was also as we were starting to draw down. So we demilled that base while I was there, moved to a Georgian base, uh, PBA Red V. And uh, I was only at the, the Georgian base for a little bit, uh, maybe like the last month of my deployment there. Yeah. So Helmand, where that was a pretty action packed place back in those days. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. We were busy there yeah. uh because especially this was at the time where there there wasn't a lot of cannon uh, artillery shooting at the time other uh because we needed precision fire so i it was us or aircraft for the most part so when you think about your what you knew about history while you're in those environments did did you you know Harken back to the stories of the golden age, if you will, in terms of your interface with interpreters or the locals or the Georgians. Uh, you know, did you see yourself as uh, what we were talking about in terms of the way that a Bainbridge or Decatur operated? Uh, it would have been nice, but honestly, with uh, where I was, uh, I didn't interact with many other than than Marines because we were shooting from a distance, essentially, that uh, other than, like, at our, our, like, yes, we had the Georgians at the Georgian base, interacted with a few. We were there so briefly, though. You let your uh, cannon shells do the talking in terms of foreign relations. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so you got out after that, um, and, and so what are, you, what, what are you doing now? What, what, how did you wind up in Houston? Yeah. As a, are you just a freelance yeah, writer, so, or what, what do you got I, going on? Uh, partially. I did a, another deployment, uh, after that, shortly after I got back, I, uh, went I to, uh, 111 and, uh, was the fire support coordinator for BLT-14 for the 13th MU, uh, which was a great, great experience. Uh, then got out shortly after that. Uh, my wife works in the oil industry. All, so all roads lead to Houston. That brought us from uh, Southern California to the humidity here. Um, and yeah, I've been uh, working as a freelance writer. Uh, actually tried uh, uns 
successfully to make a bit of a career as a competitive runner in there. Uh, but yeah, working as a writer now, raising some kids. What kind of running? Um, I did cross country and track at the academy. Um, and yeah, I started doing uh, marathons then. Actually, when I was in the Marine Corps, I was on the racing team there and continued that afterwards for a bit. What's your best anymore, marathon no. time? Uh, my best was uh, 2.29.44. Oh, my God. It would have been the 2011 uh, Marine Corps Marathon. That's fantastic. Great time. Yeah. This is about oh. 20 pounds ago, maybe more. <laughs> <laughs> we can relate. Bill, I noticed you graduated from the Academy with honors in history. Um, I, I'm, I'm fascinated and um, really gratified to see an, an up-and-coming talent who's interested in the age of sale. Has that always been a focus of your interest in history, the age of sale? I think so. It's something I've actually thought a lot about and that I think at first, like all the romantic aspects of it are probably what drew me in originally, but I've become even more fascinated by the idea that a Navy is a complicated thing you need a lot you have to have certain levels of technology finance bureaucracy to be able to maintain something like that uh, especially like in the 18th century let's say a a militia needs a captain who can convince people to do things and enough people with guns it's an oversimplification but you can't really have a, a naval reserve like that um, in that respect, like you need to have this certain level of professionalism. But one thing that I think is becoming a through line through a lot of my research and writing on this period is that the U.S. Navy really wasn't a professional organization yet then. Like we didn't have standardized training, evaluations, promotions, our bureaucracy. Like it's sad you have to say like you do need some of that. We had a part. I'm secretary of the Navy and a clerk uh, for a while there. Like, that was it. Um, and you look at, like, when you compare that and, like, the War of 1812, where we have, it's less than a dozen, I think, uh, civilians employed within the Department of the Navy going against the British who have had the Admiralty for or how long at that point like it was a very well established system and uh it that that's just uh ceases to fascinate me yeah and as our good friend you, trent hone's book uh points out some of those things didn't happen for a hundred more years you're talking in terms of organization yes. and sort of codifying uh some of the professional elements of the uh of the naval service go ahead eric what are you working on now? And any projects, uh, age of sale related, uh, you're currently involved with, you'd care to mention? Um, I'm pretty far along on uh, one article about uh, Daniel McNeil, who is a, if were known, he'd be an infamous captain of the early U.S. Navy, but he's kind of just uh, uh, a footnote of a footnote for a lot of things. But uh, I, w I was about to finish it, and uh, when the pandemic happened and the library that had some manuscripts that I was hoping to get has been closed since March, so <laughs> uh, waiting on that to just finish up a little bit of research. And the stories that nobody knows are the best ones, right? Like you say, infamous. Yeah. Our ears perk up. Eric and I are drawn to the infamous. <laughs> yes. 
So the article is The Seventh Frigate. It's in the August issue of Naval History Magazine. The author is Bill Prom. Bill, thanks for joining us here on the Proceedings Podcast today. Uh, thank you, gentlemen. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Bill. Look forward to seeing more from you. All right, that'll do it for this episode of the Proceedings Podcast. Remember, victory begins at the Naval Institute. We'll talk to you next time. Thank you.